Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. And um, so I was here for a number of reasons, but... I had the opportunity, uh, Rav Shmuley asked if I would share a little Torah with you, and I, I wanted to share with you something that really is so important to me, I think will really move you, I think will be very meaningful, it might be something you can share with somebody else, some of which I'll share you pro- won't be new for you, but I think will help you see it in a different light. So, uh, you know, I'll tell you a little bit about, about my story and share uh, a few pieces. So, I don't know if anyone has ever seen this picture before. Um, so this was my synagogue, my former synagogue in New Orleans. I'm now at a synagogue in Rockville, Maryland. It was a startup that we're creating called Kilat Pardes. It's an amazing place, and you're all welcome to join us um, anytime right outside D.C. But before I was there five years ago, um, I spent six years in New Orleans. We went down because of Hurricane Katrina. And um, this picture was a, a famous picture. It, it looks better in a, on a on a fuller screen and um, in different light and different uh, projector. But you can see here this picture of a volunteer. Um, you might be familiar with the uh, organization called Zaka, which does a lot of work in Israel after terrorist attacks, unfortunately. Um, but they sent a team to New Orleans to recover dead bodies, Jewish bodies, um, or Jewish artifacts that, uh, you know, like Torah scrolls. And uh, so they came into the synagogue um, which took in 10 feet of water. And, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine what 10 feet of water does to a synagogue. You can look around just this space, even though there's not much in this room, but imagine if there was an ark on this wall, right? And there were books, prayer books, chumash, whatever would be in here. All of that would be underwater. The president of the time, her name was Jackie Gothard. She just passed away, actually. Um, and Jackie, who just an incredible mentor for me and special woman, she, she was the president, and she said that uh, she spent all night evacuated in a hotel in Birmingham, and she started to do the math because she saw images of the broken levees and the water coming into the neighborhood of the synagogue and saw that the water was at the height of the doorway of a house on the street of the synagogue. So she figured it was a certain number of feet, um, based on the doorway and what she remembered. So she started to do the math in her head. Well, if you, if you go to the space, there's uh, the, the street, but then it, it slopes up the, to, towards the synagogue, a slow, slow, slow slope. Maybe it comes up about three feet until you get to the door of the synagogue. Okay, but then when you go in the synagogue and you go into the main sanctuary space, there the, the ark is actually built up on the wall. So it's about four, maybe three feet from the ground, maybe four feet from, let's say three feet from the ground. But then there's about six inches, eight inches of wood at the bottom of the ark. 
And then the Torahs sit on top of a felt pad that's a few inches tall. And then think about the bottom of a Torah. What's at the bottom of a Torah scroll? The wooden spindles, right? So how tall are the spindles on a Torah scroll? Six inches, eight inches. I mean, but then there's like the, the wooden loops and maybe, maybe it, it's held up a little bit, maybe another couple of inches. She said she did the math all night long, couldn't sleep, praying that she could get enough inches to get the parchment as if she can physically move them, right, in her mind, out of the water level. But if you look, you can't see it so well in this light. But look on the ark. If you notice here, it's a little darker and then it gets lighter. So if you go in, if you went in person, you could see it even better. There's a strong water line right here where the water came up on the ark and sat for 13 days before the pumps came in and the water started to recede throughout the city. So the Torahs were almost fully submerged in water, seven Torah scrolls for 13 days. This picture was taken a few days after that when the water levels had dropped another few feet. He's standing waist high in water and carrying the Torahs out of the building. Um, but they had already been drenched underwater at the time. When they opened up the scrolls to see if they were usable, the letters were dripping off the pages. And the pages were moldy and rotten and black. Um, and actually, the community had all evacuated and were gone, and the city was closed. He, he put these Torahs in a boat outside the front door because there was no street, and they, he boated away, you know. Um, but the secretary of the synagogue, her name was Becky Hegelan, she lived on the outskirts of the city, and she, not Jewish, she offered to take the Torahs to her home, and she called the rabbi, and he said to her, you know, tell me about the condition of the Torahs. And she said, you know, Rabbi, I, I don't know from my Torahs, but like they're black, and the letters, the ink's all mushed at the bottom, and, and he said, would you, could you help? We, we bury Torahs. And she buried the seven Torahs in her backyard by hand. And, uh, and then six months later, when the water receded and people came back to the city, they exhumed the Torahs and buried them in the synagogue cemetery in New Orleans. And uh, look, we're talking, about, we're talking about rain, and here comes the rain. Uh, it's, uh, it's a, so um, actually, I always tell people, if you go to New Orleans, um, skip Bourbon Street, number one. And then there's a lot of amazing places to go. Here's some great music and good food, including the beignets, which we made kosher when I was there, which were fantastic. But um, you should go to our cemetery. It's the only Jewish memorial to Katrina. And we have this powerful uh, tombstone with just amazing language that marks the burial of the seven Torahs and the 3,000 books from the synagogue that we buried because they had God's name in it. Um, so anyway, that, that's this story, and that's where I, I went because of Katrina and uh, was down in New Orleans for, um, you know, for six years with my family. It was an incredible, incredible time. And one of the Torahs, one of the, the teachings that my experience there brought to my life was the following question. If everything got wiped out in your community, if everything got wiped out in your home, how would you rebuild it? If you had a chance to like restart and redo a certain piece, not to wipe out was what which once was, not to ignore the past, not to pretend that it wasn't there, but like, okay, 
you know, you want to rebuild the house because, God forbid, it burnt down and you have the insurance money to do it, okay? Or you wanted to, uh, a catastrophe came through our city and we had two JCCs and we didn't need it. Could you bring it together and make just one? Could you reimagine that? Could you do it? Could you take the two Orthodox synagogues in a dwindling community and merge them and find a way now that you could restart and reimagine and rethink? Could you take all the Jewish infrastructure and all the buildings and all that, and okay, a lot has changed in 30 years since we built it or in 50 years since we built it or in 70 years since we built it. Maybe we need some, a different kind of format. And we can never make that change, right? Because we're always stuck in our ways and the way we do things and it's very hard and it's expensive. But what if it just all... So Katrina in some ways was a mixed blessing, some ways, for some parts of the community to reimagine what the education system should look like, what the health system should look like, what the Jewish community system should look like. And in some ways, New Orleans did well after Katrina thinking about some of these questions. Not in all ways, and still a lot of problems, but I feel like our community was blessed to rethink some of those questions. This building was built in 1970 for 400 plus families. When I moved there in 2007, there were about 100 families in the synagogue. And uh, the building, we didn't need the building as it was. And the architecture was also old. There's our flash flood warnings that are all going off on our phones. All right, I'm glad we're inside this sacred uh, space. But I'll tell you one, one last little funny piece and then I'll move us a little bit. You notice something off here in the corner? Anybody know what this is right here? You want to take a guess? It's hard to see it. So it, it looks like a mechitza, maybe. You could see part of this like railing, right? This is inside. And so this is, this is part of the mechitza that separates as an Orthodox synagogue. But the other part of what you're looking at is the bima, the reading table. It was a, a movable reading table. They would move it out of the center of the room to make way for like weddings and activities and events. But when the water came in, that would have been right here. The water lifted it 10 feet in the air, floated it over the machitza railing into the women's section, and it deposited it on top of the women's pew. So the women like the joke in the synagogue that God was trying to send us a message. You know, bring us the Torah. And, uh, and now the synagogue, when it rebuilt, one of the things it did was move a, a machitza to the center of the room. The men and the women now have the same space on either side, same size space and, uh, and shared space. Still a machitza Orthodox synagogue, but um, just reorienting the architecture of the space and reimagining what we want to look like. Yeah. Did you take it down, the synagogue down all the way? So, we ended up, it's a longer story, but this, we ended up selling this space and building five miles away where the community migrated, basically. Because this neighborhood was hit 10 feet, five miles away it was hit three feet. And the damage was very different, and the rebuilding process was very different, and the community had shifted anyway. So there's a lot of factors in it. But, um, so anyway, you know, I think a lot about, like, if you, if you could have reimagined a space, reimagine your place, reimagine the kind of community you want or the spirituality you want to bring into your space. So how would you do that? And what are the tools that we as leaders or you as lay people, lay leaders or individuals can imagine how your communities can rethink spaces 
and create spiritual spaces for yourself. So that's a little bit of, of the thinking that I started to, to play with a little bit. And I wanted to learn with you a text that became very instrumental for me in thinking about that. So this is a, a little artistic rendering of what? If you cheated, it was on your papers. But here's, whoop, here is Jacob, Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov is sleeping, right? The angels have come, and there is the? The Sulam Yaakov, the ladder of Jacob, with the angels, right, going up and coming down um, from, uh, from this space. Um, you might notice the, uh, the, the bed that he's lying on here. There's a few other images to, to think about um, as well in this, in this beautiful rendering. So let's, since we're, we're an intimate group, let's read the story together. I want us to look at what this story is going to teach us. It's a story maybe some of us are familiar with or know in and out perfectly. I want to show you a part of the story, part of the story that we don't actually focus on enough and to me is one of the central characters of the story that nobody talks about. Okay, so let's, let's read the text. It's a beautiful text. I love it. So take it away from the top. Okay, so we learn about Yaakov. Where was he coming from? Okay, but what happened in Beersheba? What was the story right before this? What do we remember about Jacob? Why was he walking, leaving Beersheba, which was his home? What are we, anybody? Okay, so mom says, time to run because your brother is very mad and Esau, Esau is likely going to kill you, okay? Which also tells you that she can't protect her son, which is asked a lot of questions about dad and everything else in that story. But Esau is very mad and perhaps rightly uh, so, okay? The blessings have been stolen. Yaakov is on the run. All right, so there's a lot of fear going on. He's terrified. Where am I supposed to be? What's my space? What's my place? Okay? And he, he gets to this uh, place, and he encounters the place. The rabbis say, this is where we get the idea of an evening service from. He encounters a place, and he lies down there, and he has this dream. And from Jacob, we learn that there's something important before you lie down or as you lie down at night to say ma'ariv, to have an evening prayer. Um, and this is the source of that, uh, of that uh, custom. It's at least one interpretation. Okay? And he takes the stone to that place. He places it on his head. I don't know if you could see that in the picture. Uh, it's a little hard to see it now. But he puts the stones under his head and he goes to uh, sleep. Okay? Want to read for us? By the way, who's missing? The Lord of your father Abraham and your Lord of your father Isaac. Who's missing? Rightly so. Well, 
Very good. The mothers also. Thank you. Not to mention himself, right? We always talk about the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Well, you don't say that phrase yet because he's the character in the story, okay? Um, but not to mention also the Imahot, the mothers here in their, in their role, okay? Keep going. Okay, so he gets this blessing. This is his covenant, right? And this is the dream. This is what we say famously. There's so many beautiful pictures of this story. Actually, um, my son, my, my firstborn, Elyon, who's 14 now, um, his name is Elyon Yaakov. He's named after a Jacob. And the word Elyon is his first name. Comes from, anyone know where we use the word Elyon in our services or prayers? Shalom Aleichem, Malachi Hashare, Malachi Elyon. So it means Malachi Elyon means angels on high, Elyon, or, or supreme or most high. We call him Mr. Supreme. But so Elyon Yaakov, we tied this story together. My uncle, a blessed memory, um, was love to, to fly in gliders. And um, so he, we have all these pictures of him in the sky, flying, always up high, trying to soar the heavens. He was deaf, and he had a hard time on earth. It was very difficult for him to connect with people, and a beautiful soul. And uh, we always think of him as soaring in the sky in some way. So we think of Elianakov when we moved into our home in Maryland. I have a friend who's a glass, stained glass artist. And in our foyer, he built a Sulam Yaakov out of stained glass pieces. So this beautiful ladder, uh, Jacob's ladder, uh, when you walk into our home. So this story resonates a lot. But what are the characters in the story? We have, who are the characters? Jacob, obviously. Who else? His okay, his brother who's not here, but sort of the backdrop of the story. The angels. The angels. Who else? God at the top. Okay, and let's broaden it from those kinds of characters to other kinds of characters. We have the ladder, which is a, an important character in some ways in the story. The Sulam is interpreted in lots of ways in mystical tradition, what the ladder represents and the rungs of the ladder and all of that. And the stones, okay? So let's, let's obviously that's our topic for tonight. So I want to sit on for a second what role the stones play in the story. So what do you notice about the stones so far in our story? They're his pillow. An odd choice for a pillow, I might argue, right? So what, what is one interpretation of why he chooses stones for a pillow? I mean, it's not all that comfortable, right? So why might you choose stones for a pillow? Okay, so maybe you want to really, you know, forget that little comfy cushion pad when I camp. I want to feel the stones biting into my back. Eh, pushing it. But often, some of the commentaries argue, what? It's what was there. Okay, it's, it's what was there. So it tells you something. The space had stones. It was a rocky place. So when it says, he encounters a place, what does he encounter? 
a pile of stones. He actually, just try to imagine the scene for a second. He's walking or maybe running. And what happens when you run and all of a sudden you enter a space of lots of stones? Can you run the same way? No, like all of a sudden you're tripping or you have to be careful where you're walking. And he, it somehow the space holds him. It stops him. And if, I, I don't know how many of you are campers. I'm a big camper. But like when you're camping and you're hiking out in the wilderness, all of a sudden you might come to a space and you might say, oh, this would be a great place to break camp, to make camp, right? Like I could see there's a cave or rocks or right kind of tree or right kind of shelter. So you can imagine Yaakov encounters a place and he says, ah, oh, there's something about this place which would be a good place to spend the night. That's one way to interpret the story. Yeah. Okay, great. So maybe he sees this and sees somebody else has slept here before. They're set up in a certain kind of way. Maybe they're a marker. Or also, many of the commentaries argue that what moved him about this space was what, what else could the stones be used for? Foundation. Foundation for? Okay, for building a home, a structure. And what's good about stones? They protect you. They create shelter. So one of the ideas is that he wasn't creating a pillow under his head. He was creating a shelter around his head to protect him from scorpions and snakes in the night. So you could look at this picture as one example, but, but maybe it's more like he's creating a shelter around his body. And the stones, he sees them and he says, oh, this is a good place. So for all the reasons we mentioned, something about the stones grabs him, catches his eye, forces him to stop, makes him think that this would be a good place for us to be. Okay, so these are stones. I'm going to just close this door so that we don't worry about the rain coming into our space. We'll make sure it doesn't uh, seep in. Okay, so these are the, um, these are the, the stones that uh, he's encountering. Okay, now one other piece that's famous about this story is that he encounters the place and he sees a lot of stones. But what happens when he wakes up the next morning? Look at the next paragraph. Yaakov awoke early in the morning. He took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. So when we do a critical reading of this text, many of the famous uh, comments by the rabbis all note one important detail which is wrong about this sentence or which is off. Anybody familiar with that or you can see it on your own here? What's odd about that sentence? What doesn't fit with our story? He woke up early in the morning. He took the stone that he had put under his head and he set up a pillar and poured oil on top of it. What's wrong? What? Okay, first of all, where did he have the oil? Just carrying a jug of oil just in case he encountered a stone and wanted to make a pillar? Possibly. It's interesting. Okay, also you can imagine using the stones to create a press to create the oil. That could be something else going on here. But what else do you notice? Have you thought? Okay, great. So this is a classic point here. Great, great read. He, the, the, the point that was made, yes, is loud, and I should repeat anyway. The point is that the stones he encounters in the place are now depicted as a single stone under his head. In the Hebrew, which the English here is true to, because I translated it, right, uh, it, is that when he encounters the place, he, he takes the stones and he puts a pillow or a shelter around. But when he wakes up in the morning... He has a single stone that he uses for the pillar. So it could be that he just chose one, right? That's one simple read. 
But it doesn't sound like that in the text. And actually, the rabbis tell this great story. Like, imagine the story where Jacob lies down. He takes all the stones. And they say, hey, guys, look who it is. It's Jacob. We love that guy. Ooh, he put me under his head as his pillow. And the next rock says, oh, no, no, I want to turn. He pushes the other rock over. And the other rock says, no, 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 I want to be under the famous Jacob. And they all push and shove until they blend together as a single rock. Right? This is this legendary tale of the stones. There were multiple to become one. It's like a sweet notion. What's the message that we're meant to learn from such a tale? Okay, I'll leave you for that for homework. But, um, but what's interesting here is that, that the stones become animate for the rabbis. They're characters in the story. They're dynamic. They shift. They move. They're there for a purpose. They're there to stop Jacob on his way, to not let him run past. They're there to protect him, to shelter him, to comfort him, to help him mark the place, right? The stones become one of the most important characters in this story. We could spend a lot more time on this text, but I want to I wanna just have you hold on to this notion that the stones of this story are an important character in the story. And stones, for me, and in Jewish tradition, have a very powerful role to play in lots of different ways. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So I want to share with you now some of my famous, my favorite stones. And I call them stumbling stones. Much like Jacob stumbled over his stone, I want to show you some other stones that are very famous in the same way. And I want to show you why I think that they connect to this story in a strong way and the messages that we learn. Okay? So, and I'll show you my next favorite stone. Yes. Yes, good, good. And he placed them. Me avnehamakom, yeah. Right, on his head. But if he placed, but he uses the word he placed them, and he took from the stones of that place and he placed them. Right, so it says avne, so he takes from that place a plural form of stones. So he takes, so as if to say that it's a very rocky place and he's chosen some of them which all become one stone in the end of the story somehow, which become a pillar that he sets up. And then this becomes Beit El, the house of God. This becomes the gateway to heavens for him. And an interesting whole other story about what that stone becomes. And maybe we'll come back to that. It, it's there. We have this place in Israel. But I, whether that's exactly this place or not is an interesting question. But we'll, we'll get to it. So... Anybody, um, has anybody ever been here before? This is the southern wall of the uh, Temple Mount in Jerusalem. If I turn the corner right here around the side and I walk up 100 yards, I get to the Kotel, the western wall, where our plaza is today um, that we pray in the Jewish quarter. Okay, But actually, the stone wall that we call the Kotel, the western wall in Jerusalem, 
actually is, is part of um, a retaining wall that still exists on all four walls, not just the western wall. This is the southern wall, but all four walls, at least to some degree, are still standing today. Imagine the top of, a mount, of the mountain, if this is Mount Moriah. So they had a problem, you know, a couple thousand years ago. It was very difficult to build a temple on top of a round mountain. So what do you do? You build four walls, retaining walls around the mountain. You fill it in with dirt and you create what? A flat surface. And then you can build your temple on top and have a nice plaza up there for people to walk around. So we don't have the temple anymore today. In its place, there's a golden dome, Al-Aqsa and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, right? But um, we do have still from that time period parts of the original retaining wall of the second temple. And that's, that's what's still standing, okay? So if you walk around the corner, this is the, what the southern wall looks like almost entirely from corner to corner. If you, if you kept going straight off of here, and you go straight here, this little corner is a view of the next hill known as Har Hazetim, Mount of Olives. And if standing right here, looking straight out, I can see my great-great-grandmother's grave, um, which is right, right over there. Um, but this is one of my favorite places to be in Israel. So what do you notice? And I put this picture on your sheet. You can look at it later, too. But what do you notice about this place that's interesting or striking or stands out for you? Okay, we have stairs that go up, and you can't see it in this picture, but right here are three gates. They're called the Hulda gates. These were the gates, the main gates to walk onto the Temple Mount in the Temple times. So people would walk up these stairs, and the gates were open. They've since been bricked up by the Turks, the Ottoman Turks. But you could walk straight onto the Temple Mount, and that's how you access the Temple Mount. Okay? All right, what else do we notice? Well, some of this, um, maybe it's just the angle, but you know, the steps are white and the wall is yellow. Okay, so part of that's just the coloration on here, because um, it's not exactly like that. But, uh, but you're right, some of these have been a little bit repaired, you can tell. They're newer, whereas you can see some of the older ones, are, they've preserved so that you get a sense of the, what 2,000-year-old what steps look like and what they would have looked like if they were fresh um, and new. So maybe that some of the coloration is partly due to the, the newness of the construction. But yeah. Okay. Okay, so like for example, you're saying this is like a platform here as opposed to a small one here and a platform there, maybe a platform here. So actually, if you, if you, you can look at this when we uh, uh, turn on the light in a second, but actually what happens is the steps are almost all different lengths. So this is a long step, short step, long, short, long, short, 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 long, short, long, short, long. It's like bizarre. Someone wasn't paying attention when they built the steps. They're all different lengths and it's strange such that, you know, you know what happens in the middle of the night, you go down to get a drink of water. Well, it doesn't work in Arizona. It's like all one story houses here, right? Like whatever. Okay. So let's say you have steps in your house, right? So what happens if your steps were all different lengths in no particular order? 
and you go down in the middle of the night, you run down to get something, you run up the stairs to get something you forgot before you run out of the house, what are you going to do? You're going to stumble. These are some of the oldest stumbling stones we have on earth. And it's interesting, our architects or archaeologists think that it was built intentionally this way so that when you went to the temple to bring your offering or to pray, you wouldn't run up the steps like, oh, man, I'm late for service, you know, and run into the synagogue or the temple. Or when you left, you don't just like run out and go to your class or go to your job or whatever. You have to pay attention when you walk. Otherwise, you might stumble. And so what happens is it forces you to think, to slow down, to remember where you're walking and, and makes you think about that space and why it's important to you, right? Does that make sense? See what they're trying to create here? Yeah, yeah you want to comment? No, so that would have been inside the temple. There's 15 steps inside the temple. I think that's what you're referencing. Okay. But, um, um, you know, but this is sort of like the pedestrian entry point uh, into the temple space. Okay? That was only recently. I mean, in the last... Oh, they've uncovered so much recently. What's amazing. You can see all of this now. It's like incredible. But I love coming here and just sort of meditating on these steps, walking up them slowly focusing yourself and what and then praying at the top step uh, when you get up up there even though you can't walk on from this angle but so this is one of my favorite stumbling stones I want to show you another one that maybe you're more familiar with or you've seen uh, before so um, very hard to see it in this light but this is the Jewish quarter in the old city it's a little cafe right here. I lived here for a year, right around the corner. And um, I used to sit in the square, people watch and have a good time and hang out with friends. And there's a funny feature of this square. Have you been, has anybody been to the Jewish Quarter Square in Jerusalem? So it's a big open space, about as big as this room. And uh, it's an open square. It's all stone paved like the old city is. And I would sit on the corner and watch. And you'd see people come through, just like this lady is. Do you see what she's carrying in, behind her? Suitcase. It's a red suitcase. She's about to have a major problem. Okay, and, and this happens every day to hundreds of people. It's like the most bizarre thing you've ever seen. They're all walking through. It's rocky. So you're bumping your suitcase. You know, it's like it's rocky when you're going through. It's not a smooth ground. But when you get to this space, do you notice on the ground a little funny feature? There is, you can see it here, one, two, three, it's a big one, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and maybe ten, I can't remember if it's here, stones that are raised up about an inch and a half over and above the rest of the plaza, and nobody sees them because they're the same color. And so people walk in with their suitcase and all of a sudden it's like, you know, or worse, they come in with a stroller with a child and all of a sudden the kid's brain is getting rattled inside the cage or tour groups come, 50, 60, 70 people and they can't see in front of them. So all of a sudden half the tour group starts tripping on the stones on top of each other and it becomes this domino effect and everybody falls down. It's actually really dangerous in some ways. 
So I always wonder, like, why is that there? And I just assumed somebody made a big mistake when they rebuilt the city in 1969 after the Six-Day War, and they just accidentally didn't do a good job of laying these stones. But is that true? No. So what's the reason why? What's the original one? These stones are 2,000 years old. They come from the time period of Agrippus uh, II, not quite 2,000, but uh, who wanted to help beautify the city of Jerusalem because he was trying to appease the Jews and win back favor, especially from the priests whom he killed many. And he built all the, he did these beautification projects all around Israel, especially Jerusalem. One of the projects he did was rebuild the walls of the old, old city of Jerusalem. But he had a bunch of leftover stones. So he thought, you know, the priests really don't like me. I want to get on their good side. How about I build them a special walkway? Now, we know today that the priests, the Kohanim, lived in this part of the old city. We have remnants of their homes. And they would go on to the temple to perform the services. Not all the, not all the Kohanim, but many of them. So he built them a special walkway just for Kohanim, just for priests to walk on that goes straight onto the Temple Mount from their living quarters in this area. Now, why do you need a special walkway if you're a Kohen, if you're a priest? Anybody want to take a guess? Purity. Purity. They would immerse in a mikvah, in a ritual bath, and they wanted to go onto the Temple Mount to do the service, but they can't touch other people or things or dead animals or carcasses or things like that. They had to stay pure. So they, he built them a walkway, which was their walkway to go on the Temple Mount. And you, you wouldn't know this until you tripped over it. And then if you tripped over it, you might follow the pathway down. And right at the end of the road, they found a 2,000-year-old mikvah built into the ground right next to a home of one of the Kohanim. That mikvah today, you would never see this if you took a tour of the old city because you don't pay attention, is a tiny little memorial to, the, uh, to all the um, Jews that fell in the 1948 battle in the old city. And inside that memorial is a list of names. And on that list of names is a young boy named Nissen Guinea, who was 10 years old. And then you might ask a question, who was Nissen? And why was he 10? And why was he killed in 1948 in the battle of the old city of Jerusalem, which we lost? And then someone might tell you the answer to that question, that Nissen was a runner who would go from each of the ammunition posts and he'd bring a little sandwich for the soldiers and a little extra ammunition. And he would run from post to post. And one day he didn't show up for breakfast and he didn't show up for lunch. And they got hungry and they worried and they popped out of their little nest to see if they could find him. And he was lying 10 feet away on the ground with a single bullet hole in the stomach. And they realized that Nissen had probably been hit by a sniper and took a shot. But then they thought to themselves, if he took a bullet to the stomach, he, he could have called for help. They were 10 feet away. And he, he didn't die instantly. So why didn't he ask for help? Why not? Because he knew if he called out and they popped out, the sniper would take them too. So 10-year-old boy, Nissen, had the wherewithal and the capacity to realize that he had to sacrifice his own life to save his comrades. He fell here, and he's memorialized in a little 2,000-year-old mikvah which you'd only find if you stumbled on a group of stones. They tell you a story about Agrippus II. They tell you a story about a time period in Jewish history and tell you a story about a modern Jewish story and heroes of that time. And then 
you have a whole other appreciation of this square. So the next time you go to the Rova, the Jewish quarter, stumble on these stones, share the story with someone so they know about it. It's very powerful, okay? I want to tell you one more stumbling stone. But any other questions or comments on this? It's powerful, right? So here's another one. So has anybody ever seen these? They're called Stolpelsteiners. There, there are about 60,000 of them in Europe today, uh, the, the vast majority in Germany. Um, and uh, they're embedded in the cobblestone pavement. Um, these are mostly volcanic rock around. That's what creates these cobblestones. And uh, they, they pull out a few of them, and they put them in the ground. Anybody know what they are, Stolpelsteiners? So in German, Stolpelsteiner means, you're not going to believe it, Stumbling block, okay? Stumbling stones, okay? So what was the point of the stumbling stones? Okay, so what does it say? I brought you a stumbling stone. Okay, this is a Stolpelsteiner. Um, it's, the name on here is uh, Dr. Josef Tzvi Kalibach. Um, and it says on it, I, I don't speak German, nor do I pronounce it correctly. Does anybody speak German? No. Okay, so forgive my pronunciation. Here wante, which means here, uh, here lived. Dr. Joseph Tzvi Kalibach. Um, then it says JG1883. I think that's his birth date. Okay. Then it says Deportart, 1941. He was deported in 1941 from Riga. And then uh, Urmordet. Ur 26th of March, 1942. He was murdered, 1942. The Stolpersteiners are a project of a guy named Gunter Demning, um, non-Jewish guy, who decided that he wanted to place markers in front of the homes of Jews who had been deported so that everybody should remember that there were once Jews that lived in this house. There are 60,000 of these around Europe. Um, and uh, this is what they look like. It's a cube of concrete, you can hold it, with a brass plate on top. They're embedded into the ground. People pay to have them for their family members that they know, and he goes around, I think he has a small team, and they put them in the ground. They pull up a few cobblestones and they put them in the ground. Um, and, uh, and now people remember all over Europe, you know, people like this. They're called stumbling stones. And actually somebody was just uh, in Germany, in Berlin, they told me, that their tour guide told them to walk on top of the stones. I thought, oh, horrible. And they said, no, no, no. They want you to walk on them because every time you step on it, it polishes the stone, the brass plate. It removes the grime that builds up and it keeps them shiny. So the tour guides tell you to walk on them so that you stumble on them, but it helps keep them uh, their shine. Can you, uh, yeah, can you so just get that light? So great question. There's a woman in my congregation, um, a man in my congregation whose mother is a survivor. She just passed away a year ago. Um, and she volunteered for the Holocaust Museum in DC. And one of the projects she did was to try to promote Gunther's project of Stolpelsteiners. And they gave her one of these, uh, a replica. This is in the ground uh, in Riga. Um, and, but she uses it, she used it to talk about it. Um, and her husband, I called him, 
and I asked him if I could borrow it to talk about it, and so I, I've, I've held on to it for a little bit. Um, this gentleman here, you could turn off the light, AJ, for a second. This gentleman here, he had um, uh, five children. He sent the, um, the, I'm trying to remember now the details, but he sent three of them on a kinder transport, and they lived, and the other two perished along with he and his wife and other members of the family. Uh, they were brought out to the forest in Riga and shot and all murdered there. And there's a memorial uh, in Riga to the victims that were all killed uh, from that town. Um, and there's a lot I could tell you about this gentleman for another time, but you stumble over a stone, you ask a question. I'll just show you, I was in Rome last week um, in the Jewish ghetto in Rome. They're everywhere. And, uh, and I just, this, that's me. I just stopped in front of a door that was next door to the apartment that I stayed in. And this is what was in front of the apartment. You could tell they're almost brand new, put into the ground. Um, but these are all over the place in the Jewish ghetto in uh, Rome today, which is one of the popular tourist destinations because incredible food. Uh, the kosher restaurants in the Jewish ghetto are some of the most popular restaurants in Rome. Um, so an amazing place to go. They also had a really cool feature for someone who's Shomer Shabbat like myself you can prepay for the restaurants and then they reserve a seat for you and a five course dinner for Friday night and Shabbat lunch. How cool is that? I love that. So anyway, this is uh, again, another example of these stumbling stones that are all over the place. So tell me, why did Jacob stumble on stones? What was the point? Okay, so who wanted Jacob to slow down? Let's just go with God for a minute. Why not? Or the reader of the Torah. We should see Jacob stumbling, stopping. Stop running from your problems. Pause. Think. So one of the things I begin to wrestle with is, what are the stumbling stones in our life? How do we create them? like these. An artist, a man with a vision that said, I want people to stumble. I want you to think about something. I do this in my synagogue, by the way, all the time. I want people to stumble over ideas, over things that have happened. I pause and we say Amisha Berach prayer for healing. And in my prayers, I'll stop and I'll say a name of some person I'm thinking about that I know is in the hospital and I want everyone to know because maybe the family needs visitation or food or help or support. Let's think about that. I'll pause and I'll say, here are the Israeli MIAs whose families, some of which haven't had closure for 30 years. The families of Ron Arad and Zachariah Baumol and Svi Feldman and Guy Hever and Yudha Katz and recently Hadar Golden and Aron Shaul whose, whose bodies were not returned in the last Gaza war and the parents know that their children are not alive but have no body to bury and nobody, no grave to mourn. Right, you know, let's pause. Let's stumble over that. Let's not just go about our Shabbos and not think about the fact that some families don't have, they have, they have two empty seats at their table, an empty seat. Like, let's, Hold that. You don't have to stumble all the time, but moments. Can we create stumbling stones that are important for our children to think about? I was just at the grave of my grandparents. It's a stumbling stone. I'm coming through Phoenix. I should stop and pause and think about my name and my grandfather who I never met and my grandmother who I hear all kinds of crazy stories about and I would have loved to have met. 
that's a stumbling stone. It's inviting you into something. And I, I think about this concept, and of course, the most famous verse in the Bible about stumbling stones is, is a little bit awkward, right? It says in the book of Vayikra Leviticus, and we're going to wrap up in just a couple minutes, Lo tikalel cheresh, shouldn't insult the deaf, before a blind person, don't put a stumbling stone. And if you put a stumbling stone, what happens in front of a blind person? They can't see it, they trip and they fall and they get hurt. Right? And then you have the end of the problem. Should be an awe of God. Don't put stumbling stones in front of people. So obviously, our role as rabbis, I've always been taught, is we have to make those who are uncomfortable as comfortable as we can. We have to make sure that we create accessible spaces for people with all kinds of disabilities, for the young, for the old, for different people coming from different places and different backgrounds, right? Different places. So we have to not put stumbling stones in front of people, make our Torah, our community, our family accessible. It's so important. But we have another job too. And this is the other part of the teaching I got in rabbinical school. Not only do you make the uncomfortable comfortable, what's my job? to make those who are comfortable a little bit uncomfortable. So I like to read the verse just a little bit different. So I say, what about the idea of lifnei iver, titen michshol, before the blind person, Rav Shmuel, you got to tell me if you think this is too crazy, but I, I want to reread the pasuk, and I want to think that maybe the Torah is inviting us to think about the idea that in front of some blind people, not blind people, we are blind to an issue. I don't know what the issue is. I didn't know anything about infertility until my wife and I lost a child at 22 weeks, and she had to labor and deliver through the night a child that was not alive. And all of a sudden, I was, my eyes were opened to a world of pain and a world of people, one out of every four couples almost in this country that experienced some fertility challenge, whatever it might be. We have four beautiful, healthy children, but we lost one in the middle for reasons that we don't understand. And now I've entered a whole world of people. My wife and I do an annual pregnancy loss memorial service for couples in the community. And people come. Sometimes couples come. Sometimes just one partner comes or whatever. I was blind to this whole issue. I never thought about it, never wrestled with it. And now I understand that this is... When my mom became a breast cancer survivor and all of a sudden I was engaged in a whole world. When my dad struggled with an illness called myasthenia gravis, which I'd never heard about, and is an autoimmune muscular disorder that's a blind disease. You don't see it. You, can't, there's no, you don't notice that a person is sick. Right? All, we are all blind to a million things in the world. Each of you, I know, I'm sure, carries something that you know about that the next person doesn't because your eyes were open to that. Either it's a joy or it's a sorrow. But so sometimes we in our communities want to create stumbling blocks so other people can learn about that. And they don't have to be things that you get hurt about. I put it here like, whoa, hey, this Shabbat is going to be a special Shabbat where we learn about mental health awareness Shabbat. And I bring three people to speak in about their different experiences with mental health crises and whatever else. And now that's a stumbling block in front of people, a stumbling stone, excuse me, not a block. It's a difference. We often translate it as stumbling block. I'm translating it as stumbling stone 
something that I trip on, I get blocked by, stumble on, and I think about, wow, this is something I never encountered uh, before. So, yeah. Well, I, I just want to end by saying um, there's so many ways to, to wrap this up, but just to say, you know, in the Jacob story, Jacob wakes up and he says, like, how awesome is this place? And I didn't know it. I didn't know it. And there's a story, there's a woman, Naomi, uh, Rachel, Naaman, uh, Rachel Naomi Raymond, who has a book called My Grandfather's Blessings. She talks about uh, the story of a doctor, a third-year medical student who's teaching them, and he asked them all to close their eyes in the lecture hall. He turns out the lights, and he asked them to put their hands on their heart and just feel the beating of their own heart for a minute. And these are medical students who are going to be working on people. And so wait a minute. How awesome is this place? And I'm not even aware of it so much. right? And this was Jacob's stumbling stone. Like, Hold on, just be in touch with who you are, your gifts. Don't run from it. Don't you know, be, be self-aware sometimes. And I, I think all of these places and objects and things that you've articulated, these stumbling stones, help bring out something in you or something in your life. And some of them are sad, or they remind us of difficult moments. Some of them are beautiful. Some of them are inspirational. But all of them are there healthy in beautiful ways to remind us of things that are important to us. That's why we fill our homes with these stumbling stones in a positive way. And I, I want to invite you to think about adding to them in your life, but also adding to them in your spiritual communities and finding ways that your communities can create stumbling stones about issues that are important for you um, and fostering more of that uh, in your spaces. So thank you so much for, uh, for being here. Appreciate it. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.